0: As we look at John chapter 15, verses 18 to 25. And the title of the message this morning is Why the Hatred? Why the Hatred? Let me ask you a question. Which is harder to do? Loving people whom you do not like or loving people who do not like you? Of course, for... Non-believers, most times it has to be said that the feeling is mutual. But for us Christians, there is, of course, the burden of a higher standard. We wish that everyone would be understanding and loving and respond with the same love and respect that we show them. Reality, however, is different. And today, in the times in which we live, in our current environment, if we were to gauge the temperature of hatred directed towards Christians, we would have to say it's getting pretty warm. And it's going to get warmer. So this morning we ask why is this happening? Why the hatred? We could come up with many sociological reasons why that is the case but we need to look no further than the words of Jesus in the text before us where Jesus declared that the world would hate us and he declared it in no uncertain terms not just once but a few times but is this really true? Come on, come on Paul, I mean Aren't you just being a little paranoid here? You know, come on. Have you taken your medication? You know, is the whole world out to get you, really? The boogeyman? Perhaps you probably think, well, these words were certainly applicable to the early church. We know what they went through its historical records, exactly what they went through, the different persecutions over a period of some 300 years. One wave after another, after another. But what about modern Australia? Surely, not that yet. Well, we know that Christians continue to suffer around the world in the past 100 years 26 million Christians have been killed for their faith. 26 million. This is more than the combined total of all the previous centuries. And this does not count the untold numbers of Christians who have been imprisoned, tortured, or suffered financial loss. Again, I'm not here to make you depressed or start feeling weird, but Jesus' words are here so that you and I can be on alert, that this is actually quite normal, this is to be expected, this is par for the course for the Christian life. If we, in fact, publicly identify ourselves as the disciples of Christ, and we seek by His grace to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, we will be hated by the world and we will suffer at the hands of the world. These things are certain. The only thing uncertain is the degree. So why does the world hate us? Now, I will try to answer the question based on the words of Jesus that we find in our text. Firstly, Christians are not of this world, verses 17 to 19. Christians are not of this world. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. What is the world? Is it the, the, the physical third rock from the sun that we refer to as earth? Is that what it is? Well, sort of, but it's more than that. It's, it's more than that. The, the world here refers to, to that majority part, the majority part of God's created order that continues to be in active rebellion against its creator. That is the world. John has already told us how much God loves the world, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. But this is far from being an endorsement, a positive endorsement of the world. It is a testimony of the character of a loving God. God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so lovable, but because God is so gracious, and the world is so bad. The disciples here are no longer part of the world because Christ has chosen has chosen them out of the world. or oh, don't don't worry; they're, they're fully immersed in the world, but they're chosen out of the world. So the world in John's Usage the way he describes it here. The world, in his language, does not comprise believers at all. Those who genuinely come to faith are no longer of this world. They and us have been chosen out of this world. If the world still loves you, there's a couple of reasons. They don't know that you're a Christian. They think that you're one of them or you haven't done anything in your life to, to threaten any of their uh, continued um, understanding or even respect that they once had for you because you just never brought it up. You're so well camouflaged in the world. They think you're one of them. But it is because we are not part of the world that the world will not be as nice to us, will be less friendly toward us. Now, by saying that Christians are not of this world, let's just be clear we're not some weirdo, some, well, maybe that people think that, but we're not aliens from outer space. Or worse, some form of superior beings. What we are, what we are called to, is a higher standard than the world, and the world is not pleased because of that. So sometimes in the conversations, part of the accusation will be, "What you think you're better than us?" That type of thing. Let me explain. Maybe you've been here. You've been in this type of situations. If not, it's coming, okay? While, on the one hand, your company might love you for your honesty with regards to time and financial and money matters that you are someone that can be counted on and it's trustworthy, they will love you for that. On the other, they might shun you if you speak out against the company's dodgy practices with customers who you know have been overcharged for work that has not been done. Right? Okay. Some of you are nodding your head. You've been there. Again, watch what happens if you just started in a company and on the production line you make five widgets an hour while your fellow workmates who have been there for years are only making two an hour. You've been there? Yeah, I've been there. Because then everybody else's production has to come up to five widgets, doesn't it? That's chosen... We are not taken out of the world but instead go into the world. We are sent into the world, immerse ourselves in the world, not with its practice but immerse ourselves in the world be, with the gospel. The light goes into the darkness. The light does not hide under a bushel. It is meant to, it's, it is most effective in the darkness. We are sent as ambassadors, as ministers of reconciliation with the gospel in order that God might through us bring more into His kingdom. So, the people of the world rather than continue in their current form as enemies of God, might become friends of God. Of course, we know this will not be easy. It is risky, but it's not as if we haven't been warned. Jesus said in Matthew 10:16, I'm sending you out like sheep amongst sheep. Yeah? Is that what he says in your Bible? No. The fact, it says sheep amongst wolves, and wolves are scary. They hurt people. As we go in his name, we go into not friendly but rather enemy territory as Satan does not want to lose any of his own. This makes Jesus and us the focal point of his wrath and therefore the focal point of the world's hatred, those who belong to Satan. As you can imagine, the casualties are heavy. And because of the intensity and difficulty of the task, one thing that God has provided, and that was what Wally covered last Sunday, was the fact that we do, in fact, need to stand together. God's sheep need to support one another. God has given us other brothers and sisters and we are to stand together against the assault of the enemy, to encourage one another, to urge one another, to lift each other up. It is sad to say that all too often, however, there is more animosity and hostility among Christians than there is between Christians and the unbelieving world. Something has gone wrong. Have you heard the statement? I get along fine with non Christians. It's the Christians I can't get along with. Have you heard that? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard it many times. So don't, you know, don't don't give, come and share with me this gospel, because I you know, I used to go to church, I grew up in a church and yeah, blah blah blah. I can't can't stand being Christians. Where do we start? This is why Jesus commanded us. It's um, It's not an option. It's not an advice. He said, love one another. It's a command. Verse 17. Leon Morris, Australian theologian, he states, he says, It is not without its significance that the disciples are to be known by their love and the world by its hatred. Christians are to be known by their love and the world by its hatred. So when confronted with the world's hatred, it is important to have loving relationships with fellow disciples for our spiritual, emotional, our whole being needs this because otherwise we're just going to fade. To nothingness. But God has provided us a fellowship, support, and love one another. That is the first thing. So secondly, secondly, verse 20 says to us that the world hated Jesus. This is the other reason. Why the hatred? The world hated Jesus. Remember what I told you, Jesus said. A servant is no, not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Now, there could be absolutely no doubt that the world hated Jesus. If they loved him, they would not have persecuted him and nailed him on a cross. It's pretty, pretty serious stuff. And back in chapter 13, Jesus said, a slave is not greater than his master. And that was spoken in the context of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And and, and so that principle that no servant is greater than his master was applied in the context of humble service to one another. So if he, as their master, was willing to lower himself in that way, they should serve one another in a similar way. Here, in this passage, the context is moved from the the, the idea of, of servanthood to the context of persecution, that the servant is not greater than his master. So rather than expect the world to understand us and to appreciate us and to give us awards and order of Australia's and all that stuff we should expect to be treated the same manner that Jesus was treated. This is normal. This should be our expectation. Should we make sure that then, should we make sure that we do everything we can to avoid incurring the wrath of the world and its hatred? Well, I mean, if by everything we can you mean compromising the gospel in order to avoid any potential confrontation with the world, then the answer is no. Let me speak to you about another current issue. Christians have been accused of hatred towards homosexuals. And yes, certainly uh, Westboro Baptist Church. What was it that they said? They said, God hates tags. That was in the sign outside their church. That is atrocious. And I fully condemn that attitude. The Bible does condemn homosexuality, however. And it, but it never instructs us to hate Homosexuals. Nevertheless, Christians who rightly discern that homosexuality is an unnatural sin, those Christians who, reading the, the Bible, discern that homosexuality is a, an unnatural sin are equated with violent lunatics who hate. It is highly unlikely that in the near future our government it is highly sorry it is highly likely that in the future our government will declare more speech as hate speech, despite the fact that at the moment there's there's a whole raft of uh, laws to be pushed with regards to religious freedom. We don't actually know what the implications will be but We have sort of an idea. More speech, we know, is going to be considered hate speech, thereby making it illegal to consider homosexuality as a sin. In some parts of the world, it is illegal to say that homosexuality is a sin. Israel Folau got in trouble for saying that. In some countries it is illegal to declare one religion right and other religions wrong. This could mean, the implication is that in the future it could mean that evangelistic effort, when you try to share the gospel with others, could be declared as hate speech. Saying that Jesus is the only way could be declared as hate speech. It will be hateful to tell a person that if they do not believe in Christ, that they are going to hell. We are already seeing it's, 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 it's happening. And all that need to do is the politicians sign it into law and there it is. Yet, for us, telling someone the truth is an act of love, not hate. That's the way we understand it for since the beginning of civilisation. It is, is it hateful, for example, for a lifesaver to tell a beachgoer not to go into the water because there are sharks? Is that a hateful act? Warning someone and telling someone that he or she is in the wrong is not hateful. In reality, what happens is refusing to tell someone the truth is what is truly hateful. In this vein of thought, declaring the speaking the truth, presented respectfully when you say that and it's still presented it's understood to be hate speech, is that is ultimately in fact the ultimate demonstration of hate. When you turn what I say and call me hateful, that is in fact an act of hate, which is a fulfillment of exactly what Jesus said. As Christians, we cannot compromise. And I see a lot of compromising around, even from the pulpit, I'm seeing it. This is what Martin Luther said and you need to read history to understand the context, the times and the price he paid for what he said. But this is what he said and I quote, If I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ. However boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefields besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. End of quote. It's all in, isn't it? Not just mostly in, but all in. Thirdly, why does the world hate us? Because they do not know God, verses 21-24. They will treat you this way, Jesus said, because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen and yet they have hated both me and my Father. We as believers are to pursue peace with God and peace with men. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. The Bible also says, live at peace with all men as far as it depends on you. Yet, the reason why it will be very difficult for us to achieve peace is because of what we stand for and who we stand for. That God the Son came and died on a cross for our sins in order to give eternal life Through faith in him. This means that people have to acknowledge their sins and repent. It means that they have to humble themselves, and this is something that that hits their pride, and something that the world will not be prepared to do. This is why the message of the cross, as the Apostle Paul said in one Corinthians, is foolishness to men. How is it that without Jesus coming, they would not be guilty of sin? Doesn't Paul say in Romans that all men are sinners and rightly condemned by God? Romans three twenty-three. Because it is because Jesus has come that in fact man is robbed from all excuse for his sin. the worst sin they're guilty of is the sin of not knowing God even when God reveals himself most explicitly in Jesus Christ. The light has come in its brightest form, in its brightest form and they still choose the darkness. Obviously, the atheist does the atheist does not know god because he denies the very existence of god and if there is a god this is the agnostic version then he still doesn't want anything to do with him because he's out there he's i don't want anything to do with him he might be there he might not be there but i don't care basically but but there is another group here that is in fact in view these This is here because of the nominal believers. The ones who give lip service but their hearts are far from God. They are comfortable in the thought that everything is good between themselves and God. They want to be in control of the relationship. I will go to church... Christmas and Easter, when I want to. I'll call you God, and I'll call you when I want to, but please, you know, don't bother me in the rest of my days at work and in my life. Don't call me, I'll call you, type of thing. If I need something like healing or blessing, or even the rare forgiveness for something that I you know, if you think it's a sin, okay, I'll confess that. Then, okay, I'll, you know, I'll do Hail Mary's, whatever it is, and we'll just move on. This is a, a, this is just, you, know, you don't want a relationship with God. You don't come on His terms, you want to come to God on your terms. It doesn't work like that. It just doesn't work like that. And, yes have pointed this out and they can be quite offended if you point this out to them. It seems as though Christians in Australia fail to grasp the fact that opposition and hostility from the world if it is not already normal it will be normal. I am, and I will say it again, I am ashamed and appalled by what is spoken from the pulpits, giving people a false sense of comfort and entitlement, that their lives will be filled with blessings, shielded from pain, from trials, from tribulations. Shame. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. If you don't believe me, Read your Bible. This is what Don Carson says, and I quote. It's a long quote. Here it goes. Are there no painful aspects to being a Christian, he asks. Is all the happiness and light that Christ himself was a man of sorrows who walked through the valley of the shadows of death? Do we participate only in his joy but not in his tears? Does he alone bear the cross? Even to ask such questions is to show that much modern evangelicalism borders on the frivolous. We are so often taught to think that the Christian way brings blessings without buffetings, triumphs without trials, witness without weariness. We are encouraged to believe that Christians exude overcoming joy and rarely face discouraging defeat. That they live in the realm of constant excitement and never wrestle with boredom. That they love and are loved and need not confront persecution, ostracism, hate, rejection. That they are self-confident and ebullient and never taste terror, loneliness, doubt. That they are fulfilled and satisfied but not as a result of self-denial and daily death. It is not so much that the promises are false but that they have no substance as that they, they distort truth by promising a crown without a cross. Then he says, we too easily want the fruitfulness of a well-kept vine branch but think little about the discipline pruning performed by the divine Gardener. Remember, spoke about the pruning? Where it comes from. It's hard, isn't it? I'm not going to apologize if you're feeling a little bit, yeah. Well, Paul, you know, just take it down a couple of notches. Thanks for that. Can't apologize for the Bible, I'm sorry. Ultimately, Jesus says. There are no valid reasons why the world hate us. Verse 25. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. Even though I have given you all these reasons, our text this morning concludes that there are, there are no reasons. They are more like excuses rather than valid reasons. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is here making the words of of, of David, he's making the words of David in Psalm 69 as his own. That's what he's quoting. Think about this. Jesus didn't hate, he didn't kill, he didn't rape, he didn't steal, he didn't con. Jesus taught, he fed He healed. He loved. And they still preferred Barabbas instead of him. Just think about that. So much of what is happening in our time defies, simply defies sense and logic. It defies... The, the hatred towards Christians, you hear the, the talking voices on the telly and the media, and, and you say, I cannot believe this. I cannot believe, understand what you are saying. And, and it's pretty fair. Jesus warned us. J.C. Ryle, Bishop J.C. Ryle, summed it up well when he said, It is not the weaknesses and inconsistencies of Christians. What, what he's referring to here is that Christians are accused often of hypocrisy. But J.C. Ryle says it is not the weaknesses and inconsistencies of Christians that the world hates, but their grace. But their grace. The world actually hates the grace displayed by Christians. And yet, this is the world that we are called to, to live and breathe. And to go with a message, the gospel. Let me give you, let me finish with an illustration, the story, true story. Uh, C.T. Studd, I've used his name before. C.T. Studd was born to a a wealthy Christian family in England and and became a a very gifted cricketer for England. C.T. Studd actually played in the original test against Australia where the ashes, the ashes tradition actually started back in the late 1800s. Despite all this, despite all this success, he started questioning his life. What was he doing of eternal value? Playing cricket would not make any impact on people's lives, he reasoned. And after recommitting himself to Jesus, because he, he did give his life to Jesus earlier on, but then he fell off, fell away, and then he came through again. And after recommitting himself to Jesus and, and, and seeing the, the hopelessness of pursuing the honour of this world, oddly enough, believe it or not, he actually came back to God after reading a pamphlet from an atheist. <laughs> you know, Tracks, there was actually an atheist that handed him a tract while he was walking on the street. And in the pamphlet, the atheist said that if he believed in what Christians said, that he would do anything in his power to reach as many as possible. If the gospel was true. Because so this was an obvious accusation from atheist to question: If you really believe what you are saying, then yeah, you, know, you will do everything it's possible to to reach the world, to share the word. This touched him. This had a tremendous impact in his life, and this inspired C.T. to reach out to others with the good news. He turned his back um, on all on his successful cricket career. He was right at the top of his game, right at the peak. He even turned his back on his family's wealth. Um, he donated, at the time it was an astronomical amount of money, $5,000 to uh, George Mueller, uh, his orphanage, then to the Salvation Army and then to other missions. He donated all, he gave away all, all his inheritance. And he went out into the mission field for decades. He served against great opposition. Just imagine the applause of the cricket field. Everybody thinks you're a hero. Discard, shun, all of that, and go to a place where they're going to hate you. Who does that? You've got to be out of your mind, right? Don't you want the applause? Not him. He first went to China, then he went to India, And then to to Africa. And in Africa, he actually founded WEC, which you might have heard about, the mission. And he said this, he said this, he said, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to build a rescue shop within a yard of hell. rescue shop within a yard of hell C.T. Stud let us pray Lord as you have spoken through your word perhaps something inside of us still resists just the the impact that it might have in our lives if we truly do live this way. We desperately want to be liked, we want to be loved, we want to have relationships that are meaningful, that are purposeful. And yet, Lord, here in your word you seem to call us to even a higher purpose than that. Help us, Lord, to in fact show the sacrificial love that the world does not understand by telling them the most important relationship one can have is in fact with you. That we as Christians, as believers, already value that as more than the very air we breathe. I pray, Lord, that as we go into this world that we will never compromise. We will never water down your word, but fully acknowledge and fully take on the task that you've called us for. That even as we share the gospel, we make people fully understand what it is to be a Christian, to be your disciples. We confess, dear Lord, that many times we have come short of of your calling in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you will forgive us of that and, in fact, give us a boldness, give us the courage that as we share, that it will be through the power of the Holy Spirit who is within us that reveals truth. Lord, thank you for this. In your precious name, amen.